I don't know if uh, any of you took part in, I guess what now is called Black Friday, this chance to uh, start your Christmas shopping early, or maybe for some of you it's late. Uh, I didn't, uh, neither Megan and I did, although we did, uh, our oldest daughter Laura and I walked by Target on our way to the Honda dealer to pick up our car. I was really glad that all I was doing was rewarding her for the long walk and buying her a little Coke rather than shopping there because the lines were insane. But, uh, you know, on this first Sunday of Advent, and uh, you think about buying gifts for people in your life, I got to say, buying for gifts for men is not nearly as complicated as it is for women. In fact, if you just follow these rules, you should have no problem. Rule number one, when you're buying a gift for a man, when in doubt, buy him a cordless drill. Doesn't matter if he already has one. In fact, I got a friend who has 17 of them, and he hasn't complained once. As a man, you can never have too many cordless drills. Amen, man? Rule number two, if you can't afford a cordless drill, buy him anything with the word ratchet or socket in it. Men love saying those words. Hey, George, mind if I borrow your ratchet? We just love that. Rule number three, buy men a label maker. It's almost as good as a cordless drill. Within a couple of weeks, there'll be labels on everything. Socks, T-shirts, cups, door, lock, sink. You get the idea. Rule number four, if you're really, really uh, strapped for cash this holiday season, Buy him anything for his car. I mean, a 99-cent ice scraper or one of those small little trash bags that sits kind of on the hump there in the middle of your car or something to put his sunglasses on, he'll love it. Buy him anything for his car. And rule number five, never buy him a bathrobe. I was once told that if God wanted men to wear bathrobes, he wouldn't have invited jockey shorts. That's the whole deal. (laughs) Well, this morning uh, we start this series uh, entitled um, The King That Nobody Wanted. We're talking about um, our reluctance as we look at the life of King Saul. Have you ever had someone volunteer you for something? You know, you've been in a group and someone says, hey, you you lead our group. Or you be our spokesperson. Or you go first. I don't know about you, but those are not usually roles that I like to take on. I'm a little reluctant to do that. Or maybe those calls that none of us want to take. Those calls that always come around sometime between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. from the telemarketers. Or maybe in this era, it's a call from a creditor or something like that. Those are also calls that we're usually pretty reluctant to take. Well, today we're not just going to talk about uh, phone calls we don't want to take or roles we don't want to play. But we're going to be looking at some of the root causes of reluctance and what the Bible has to say about how we can overcome our natural proclivity towards being reluctant to do the things that God calls us to. We're starting this Advent series, and Mark's entitled the series, The King That Nobody Wanted, ultimately looking at the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, and his advent into the world. Today we're looking at King Saul, the first king of Israel. He's entitled the Reluctant King, and we'll see that Saul was in fact the king that everybody wanted. He starts off kind of in this hilarious way. I mean, this is almost like a story straight out of Hollywood, a script that you couldn't even possibly create unless you were just thinking, how do I create the most wacky character imaginable? He has a few bright moments. He makes some pretty terrible judgment calls, and he leaves a fairly tragic legacy in the end. The word reluctance literally means to struggle against. It's a feeling or showing aversion or hesitation or unwillingness. Some of the synonyms for reluctant are afraid, cautious, disinclined, grudging, hanging back, queasy, squeamish, uneager, or wary. Now, there's all sorts of ways to illustrate reluctance. Men's reluctance to ask for directions is legendary. 
Talk about Peter Pan's reluctance to grow up. And speaking of kids, as Megan and I are getting our indoctrination in a very quick hurry here with our girls, is it just our girls or are all kids reluctant to make their beds, pick up their clothes, eat vegetables, all those things? It seems that at night they're reluctant to go to sleep. In the morning they're reluctant to get up and go to school. Unless, of course, it's Saturday where they want to get up when the sun rises so you don't get any sleep at all. I can talk about my own reluctance in this reverence run thing. The mornings are getting pretty cold. It kind of feels better to stay in bed than to train. Uh, but what about more serious things like the reluctance to make that phone call that I know I should make or my reluctance to kind of confront that challenging situation that I know I really should be uh, confronting? When you talk about issues of faith, the small group that we're a part of is uh, looking at spiritual gifts. And I remember doing years of college ministry, you take those spiritual gifts tests, those kind of inventories, they sort of are uh, glorified wish fulfillment, but some of the college students were really nervous to take the test that had a particular gift that they didn't want to make sure they got, that was the gift of celibacy, you know what I'm talking about? So they didn't want to take the test just in case. Well, what about our reluctance to heed God's call uh, to obedience and faithfulness? And Bel Air, with the mission that God has set before us here in this sanctuary or downtown at the bridge, how reluctant are we to truly make L.A. the greatest city for Christ? Well, what causes our reluctance? Well, I think that our story today in this book of 1 Samuel gives us at least three biblical principles that we, like King Saul, will fall into the trap of reluctant behavior every time if we think too little of ourselves or we think too little of others, or we think too little of God. Picking up our story, and if you have your Bibles, turn uh, back a couple chapters from what we read to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's kind of when we first start to get our introduction to King Saul. Samuel is the leader of the nation of Israel. This is the end of the period of the Judges. And Samuel is actually a judge and he's a prophet. And as he gets towards the end of his years, the people come to him and say, Samuel, you're old and we really don't like your sons. And so we want a king like all the other nations. Well, this bums Samuel out because he feels like his leadership is being rejected. But God speaks a word to Samuel and says, Samuel, don't worry, they're not rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me. And he says, I've got a word for you to give back to the people. And that is be careful what you wish for. Because if you want a king, this is what a king is going to do for you. And in 1 Samuel 8, kind of verses 10 through 18, he starts talking about what a king will do. It says a king will take your sons and make them his servants, and they'll have to plow his ground and reap his harvest. He'll take your daughters and he'll make them perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take one-tenth of your grain. He'll take the best of your cattle. He'll take one-tenth of your flocks. Almost sounds like our current political climate today, but... He goes on, and the people don't listen. They're like, I, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear truth. I don't want to hear reality. We want a king. And so God says, Samuel, I'm going to send you out on a mission to find the person of my choosing. And so Samuel in chapter 9 cruises around, and he finds this young son of Kish, a Benjaminite, with the name of Saul. And in verse 21 of chapter 9, well, actually just beginning in verse 20, Samuel has a word once he encounters Saul, 
And he says to Saul in the middle of verse 20, And on whom is all of Israel's desire fixed, if not on you and on your ancestral house? And Saul almost can't believe his ears. Saul's like, I'm only a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel. And my family is the humblest of all the families of the tribes of Benjamin. Why then have you spoken to me this way? I mean, Saul's just perplexed. What, what is this word from this prophet saying that I'm the one that the whole hopes of Israel is set upon? But you know, if you spend any time in Scripture, you see that that seems so consistently to be God's way. That he doesn't choose necessarily the most powerful or the most recognizable. He chooses the least to shame the strong. That's certainly what we find several chapters later when Saul's kingship is ultimately rejected and Samuel is sent on another mission to find the next king, a man after God's own heart named David. And Samuel gets to Jesse's house and he sees all the sons from the oldest down to the youngest and none of those are the ones that God wants. He ultimately wants the one out tending the sheep. And God says to Samuel, well, Samuel's just sure it's going to be this really good-looking, tall, oldest son. He says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Apostle Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians. He says, the Lord chose the weak and the lowly and the things that aren't in order to shame the things that are, that the glory might be God's, not the individual's. Well, the story goes on, and in the beginning of chapter 10, the first verse, Saul is anointed king. Chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 says, Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him. He said, the Lord has anointed you ruler over his people Israel. You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their enemies all around. The story goes on, and Saul goes and spends some time with some of the prophets and he's actually gifted with the, the gift of prophecy, and he does some funky dancing with not too much on. You can read the story a little later. And then Saul, ultimately, in the passage that we read together, is proclaimed king, and rather than kind of coming out and going, here I am, he's over by the luggage, hiding for fear and trembling. So here's Saul. Scripture says he's actually a tall guy, evidently head and shoulders above everybody else, his family seems to have some wealth. In the world's eyes, he seems to have it all. And he gets this golden opportunity. And why is he so doggone reluctant? Well, it brings us to our first biblical principle. That we, like King Saul, will fall into this trap of reluctant behavior every time if we spend too much time thinking too little of ourselves. Samuel has this sense that we read in verse 21 of chapter 9. I'm just from this puny family. I don't come from very good stock. I don't have really good ancestry here. I'm from the smallest and the humblest tribe of all of Israel. Why me? And when they call him, he's hiding in fear. And there's part of that, you could say, well, maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing, kind of thinking a little of yourself. It seems to be humble. Maybe that's biblical humility, a sincere acknowledgement of our deep dependence on God for, for anything. And this is, in fact, a good thing. But there's also a negative side to thinking too little of yourself. Because Saul here demonstrates more than just being shy. He's seriously anxious and insecure. And he has this sense of, I can't. Not me. Send somebody else. 
Because surely, God, I'm not strong enough, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm not funny enough. Stories told of George, who uh, is 28 years old and single and still living with his parents. Shockingly, like probably a lot of people here today. Just kidding. One Sunday morning, George told his mother he wasn't going to church. And first, he said, you know, I'm tired. And secondly, he said, people there don't like me. And third, you know, the sermons are dull. But George's mother said, no, George, you've got to go. Because first, we always go to worship on Sunday. Secondly, it doesn't matter whether they like you or not. And third, you're the pastor. <laughs> you see, there's almost really two sides to pride when you think about it. If we define pride as any unhealthy preoccupation with self, there's the pride that we commonly refer to where we're so full of ourselves, we read our own press clippings so frequently that we, we feel like we don't need anybody else, we can do it on our own. That, that is certainly classic pride. But there's kind of this reverse pride where we're, we think so lowly of ourselves. We're so consumed with our own inadequacy. We're so consumed with thinking about ourselves that we're like Saul, preoccupied with our own unworthiness, thinking too little about himself, and has this reluctance that's really born out of this deep insecurity, which very quickly leads to fear and all of those I can't statements. What if, Lord, they laugh? What if, Lord, I fall flat on my face? What if I make a fool of myself? What if I'm rejected? Well, picking up our story here, they do find Saul among the baggage. They bring him out. They shout, long live the king. And immediately towards the end of chapter 10, Paul, Saul faces opposition. He faces dishonor. He faces criticism from some of those who say, why do we want this guy? And then, if that's not bad enough, Saul instantly starts facing some opposition from one of the surrounding neighboring countries who see an opportunity with this young leader to test how strong of a leader he really is, and so they attack Israel. But then something happens that also seems to be a classic axiom of Scripture, and that is when God calls those he calls, he empowers them with everything they need to do the task at hand. And chapter 11, verse 6 says, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul in power. See, on one hand, we have our fears and our insecurities. On the other hand, we have God's provision, the power of his Holy Spirit. And it's an understanding that no matter how low we might feel, how inadequate we might feel like we are, how insufficient, how unprepared, how ill-equipped, that you are precious to God. And that God himself has called you by name. The almighty God has chosen you and me for a specific plan and purpose. And our sufficiency doesn't come from ourselves. Doesn't come from our own upbringing or education or anything else. It comes from him. And some of us sometimes need to hear three simple words. Get over yourself. Picking up our story, chapter 11 because of this empowerment, Saul actually lives up, at least initially, to being the leader God's called him to be, and the Ammonites are defeated. And then he does something very, very kingly, because he's confronted by some of those people within, some of those onboard terrorists who criticized his leadership and dishonored him, and people are saying, you ought to take their head off, and he just goes, no, he extends mercy, and he does a very noble thing and lets them live. 
And then we finally get to his inauguration ceremony. And I kind of ask myself, why so long? It seems like this has been going on for about three chapters now. Well, it's kind of like when you have the election in November, and then they finally do the inauguration in January. That's kind of what's going on here. But then we get to some of Saul's really foolish acts. And there's three of them. In chapter 13, he makes an unlawful sacrifice. In chapter 14, he makes a very rash oath. And in chapter 15, he demonstrates only partial obedience. And we come to our second principle, that we, like King Saul, will fall into the trap of reluctant behavior every time if we not only think too little of ourselves, but we think too little of others. Let's look at this rash oath, this second foolish act in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. Saul is with his troops. This time, the neighboring country that's attacking them is the Philistines. And Saul, kind of to prove his leadership and masculinity or something, says, you know what? We're not going to eat until we take these guys out. Beginning in verse 24 of chapter 14. Now Saul committed a very rash act on that day. He had laid an oath on the troops saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before it is evening, and I have been avenged on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. All the troops came upon a honeycomb, and there was honey on the ground. It's almost like, you know, they come across this big thing of Krispy Kremes. They're going, please, please, I just want to have it. When the troops came upon the honeycomb, the honey was dripping out, but they did not put their hands to their mouths, for they feared the oath. But Jonathan... Saul's son, had not heard his father's charge the troops of the oath, so he extended the staff that was in his hand and dipped the tip of it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers said, Your father strictly charged the troops with an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food this day, and so the troops are faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better today the troops had eaten freely of the spoil taken from their enemies, for now the slaughter among the Philistines would have, has not been great. In other words, you know, the troops are faint. Jonathan didn't hear his dad's oath. He sees this great Big Mac or whatever on the side. He takes it. He eats it. He's feeling strong all of a sudden, and the troops go, uh-oh, you know you, you shouldn't have done that. When your dad finds out, there's going to be you-know-what to pay. And sure enough, King Saul does find out. And he finds out that his own son tasted the honeycomb. But sort of to save face, Saul says, I don't care if it even is my own son. If he, in fact, did that, he should die. That's a noble thing for a king. The troops actually rise up and say, no way, you ain't ki killing your son. It was your son who basically got the victory for us. And the troops rebel against the king, and he's not able to take the life of his own son, thankfully. There went a lot of his leadership right there. You see, when we think too little of others, as Saul did, he didn't think of the good of his troops. We really are thinking too much of ourselves. I'll show them my authority, I think Saul was trying to say. It's really classic pride. It's like my rules, my goals, my plans, my agendas. And we think too little of others, we have this tendency to say, who cares about anybody else? I don't have time for this. I'm busy. I've got other plans. This will inconvenience me. This disrupts my agenda. 
This is going to cost more than I'm willing to pay. How different the king of kings. Jesus demonstrated something totally different. Although he was God and he could have demanded service and honor from any of us, the gospels say repeatedly that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And sure, Scripture records for us that Jesus poured out before the Father the deepest desires and fears of his heart. But in the end, he said, not my will be done. It's not important that my kingdom be established, but Father, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. We move on to our third and final principle That we, like King Saul, will fall into the trap of reluctant behavior every time if we not only think too little of ourselves and too little of others, but far more importantly, if we think too little of God. Let's look at this other foolish act, the unlawful sacrifice, back in chapter 13. Here Saul has defeated some of his enemies and He wants to get some counsel from the Lord and and kind of offer this sacrifice. And it's been set up by Samuel to do it in a specific way. But Saul kind of takes it upon himself to do it a little bit differently. In verse 8 of chapter 13, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. (coughs) Pardon me. And the people began to slip away from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, an offering of well-being. And as he offered the burnt, and he offered the burnt offering, and then almost just like a scene right out of Hollywood, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to meet him and salute him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul replied, When I saw that the people were slipping away from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines were mustering at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal and I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue, and the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Wow. It seems that God actually cares about us keeping his commandments. So often we say, I'll set things up where I want to. Or I can't wait for God any longer. I've been waiting long enough. Maybe God needs a little help here. God, this is no big deal. I know you'll forgive me for this one. Or God, you know my struggles here. Surely I can bend the rules and you'll understand. And our thinking of God is too small and all messed up. (coughs) Which leads us to our third and final foolish act where Saul demonstrates only partial obedience. Turn over to chapter 15. Here, Saul is given a very specific assignment through the voice and the word of Samuel. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. 
Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is a tough story. God seems pretty harsh here. It's probably a good topic for another sermon. But one thing at least is clear, that Saul is given a very clear assignment from God. And as we read on in the story, we find that he only partially obeys it. And again, Saul doesn't think enough about God. His thinking about God is too small. He has this reluctance to carry out God's assignment, which is born out of this desperate desire to to receive the applause of the troops and the crowd far more than born out of trying to be obedient to the clear commands of God. The story continues in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul, for he has turned back from following me. He's not carried out my commands. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and Samuel was told Saul went to Carmel, where he set up another monument for himself, and on returning, he passed on down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to Saul, Saul said to him, May you be blessed by the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. (coughs) But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul replied, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, Saul You think too little of yourself. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. In other words, the Lord himself has given you a charge to care for others, but you think not only too little about yourself, you think too little of others. Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But from the spoil, the people took sheep and cattle, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is no less a sin than divination and stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You read that and you almost think, sheesh, God, you seem so harsh. And maybe we're tempted to say, well, God, I went to church last week. 
God, I, I got up 10 minutes early to pray, but maybe God's clear call to you or to me was to stop on the way to church and help that person on the side of the road in need. Or maybe God's clear call to you or to me was to get up 30 minutes early so that we could go visit that friend in the hospital. Maybe God is far more concerned with doing justly and loving mercy than in going through rote religious motions. And I think our ability to grasp this is directly proportional to how much we think of God. If we think a lot of God, giving God the honor that's due Him, remembering and trembling in awe at the fact that He made everything that we see, and yet He loves even me and you, if that's how we think of God, then we're going to overcome our reluctance and get this obedience thing right every time. Picking up and concluding our story, in chapter 16, David is anointed king by Samuel, and Samuel does this while Saul is still alive and still king. Thus, almost the entire remainder of the book of 1 Samuel is David under constant threat from an understandably very jealous King Saul. Finally, in chapter 25, Samuel the prophet and judge of all of Israel dies. And Saul, a few chapters later, in a bind once again, consults a medium. He goes and visits this spiritist of Endor, kind of where we get the witch of Endor from, and channels the dead Samuel back to life to get some instruction. By the way, this is not a good thing. Scripture's pretty clear about not visiting spiritists, astrologers, and mediums. And in chapter 31, we find that Saul is eventually killed in a battle, a defeated king, leaving a tragic legacy of consistent reluctance to follow God faithfully and truly. Now, it's easy to pick on Saul. And Scripture has given us almost this comedic tragedy here of the life of Saul, and I commend it to you for further reading and study. We just pick some of the highlights. It's far harder to look at myself and to acknowledge my own reluctance, admitting my mistake and asking forgiveness, or extending forgiveness to someone who's hurt me. I'm far more reluctant to go outside of my own comfort zone or to go out of my own way or to disrupt my own schedule. I'm far more reluctant to, to stand up to that bully or that boss or even to peer pressure. I'm pretty reluctant to give to the measure that God has called me to give or to trust that God will indeed provide as he's promised. And I can be really reluctant to tell my friends that the hope that comes, that's inside of me actually comes from Jesus. You want to get this reluctant thing defeated in your life? I know I do. And if we do, I think we've got to do at least three things. First, we've got to start thinking properly about ourselves. That we are God's children. That you are God's precious child, chosen and empowered and called by him. Secondly, you've got to think properly about others. That they too are God's children. And that their needs just might supersede and surpass my own agenda. And third, and most importantly, we need to think properly about God, who loves us more than we can comprehend, and who also requires obedience 
and faithfulness to those who he's called. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, there's times when we come in here and we leave feeling a lot of hope, feeling a lot of joy, feeling a lot of affirmation. And there's times when your word confronts us and convicts us and challenges us. God, I pray that we would get this reluctance thing defeated in our lives. That we would have a proper view of ourselves and of others and far more importantly, a proper view of you who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ever ask or even think. A God who's given us his Holy Spirit, not left us orphans, but given us the comforter to equip us and to empower us and to send us out fully ready for the ministry that you've called us to. Lord, as we go out into this city, may we be found faithful. Lord, may we accurately and obediently lift up the name of Jesus high in a city that desperately needs to hear it. We ask it in his name. Amen.